Matthew chapter 5, we'll begin our time by reading verses 1 through verse 13. There we read, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. From the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let us begin our time in prayer now. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time. We thank you for those words of praise that we were able to sing to you, God, and what an incredible reminder of it is of, of your holiness, of your majesty, and what an incredible reminder it is that, that despite your holiness and despite our sin, you are our God, and you have adopted us as your children through your Son, Jesus Christ. What a humbling and incredible truth that is. We thank you for the reminder of the work that you are accomplishing in the hearts of the people here at the chapel with Landon's baptism. It is such an encouragement to see you change uh, that young man's life and see his willingness to step forward in obedience, something that would cause any adult to become nervous, and yet, God, he is convicted by your spirit. And we thank you for that desire to honor you and might his testimony be a great witness to all of us here, both believers and unbelievers. Might you use his life and his testimony in the coming days and years to be a light to the world around him. Might you cause many others to come to a saving faith in your son as they observe Landon's obedience, as they observe his own faith. And as we consider Landon's example and as we enter into this next passage in Matthew chapter 5 and consider our own calling, might we all remember, God, that, that you have given us a great gift in salvation and that you have not called us to keep it to ourselves, God, but you have called us to be used by you in the world that surrounds us, God. Might we understand that better this morning? Might we be motivated to serve you with energy, with great passion? And might we see you continue to work out the salvation of those around us? Might we see you continue to work out our own salvation to your glory and the praise of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. In our daily lives, in the midst of work, in the midst of any social event we might attend, it is natural, of course, for all of us to, to avoid people that, that don't like us, that don't care for us. If you know there's a coworker of yours that doesn't care for you, that, that has a personality that clashes with your own, you are wise to probably try to avoid them once in a while and try to avoid a lot of interaction because, again, none of us want that daily confrontation if it can easily be avoided. The difficulty comes in life when it's not just a single individual that dislikes us, but it's large groups of people that dislike us. Then it gets a little more difficult to, to avoid them. It gets a little more difficult to, to go through daily life without dealing with that 
uncomfortable and awkward tension. Yet as we've covered the last couple weeks, if you've been with us, the reality for the believer is, is exactly that. There is constant tension. There is the constant reality that there are a great number of people that really dislike us, that just don't understand us, that view our character as offensive, view our message as as horrifically outdated. And because of that view, because of the fact that we are marked as different individuals, because of the character that Jesus has already described, and because of that message that we talked about last week, because of all those things, we understand that persecution is, is inevitable. And as difficult as it is, as we saw last week, we are commanded to rejoice in the midst of persecution because of of what it confirms about what Christ has taught us, what it confirms about our own identity as believers, and because of what it confirms about where we are headed. And while that is difficult, I know that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to do it. And yet even in the midst of rejoicing, even in the midst of of trying to have a good attitude in persecution, there is still that that tendency to, to withdraw. Even though we understand that the world will persecute us, we would rather avoid that persecution, if at all possible. And and so many of us would be quite content if Jesus just stopped preaching in Matthew 5.12. We would be pretty content if Jesus just said, okay, believer, the world's wicked, doesn't like you, but be of good character, keep your head down, you'll make it. That would be hard, but that would be somewhat reasonable. But of course, as we continue on in the Sermon on the Mount, as we enter into verse 13, we see that all that talk of character, all that description that has been given about our own lifestyle, is not just simply for our own benefit. It's not for the sake of us coming together as a church on a Sunday morning and talking about how great we are. That that character plays into a much greater strategy that God is working out. And even though we would rather avoid the individuals who dislike us, even though we would rather escape and retreat from the world that is bound to persecute us, we are not given that option. And as we enter into this new passage, this new section of Jesus Christ's Sermon on the Mount, we see that our calling is to play a pretty vital part within that world. Both this week and next, we'll be talking about this calling This week, of course, we're specifically in Matthew 5, 13. We're having again explained who we are. Jesus says this about our calling. Again, reading through Matthew 5, verse 13. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under uh, under man's foot. Now, in trying to understand these words of Christ, and understanding our calling, and understanding what, what it means to be salt, we have to understand a few different things, and these things are outlined on your bulletins. The first thing we must understand is, is not necessarily what Jesus is saying here about us, but what Jesus is saying about the world, first and foremost. If we are to understand how we are to interact with the world, we have to understand what this world is like. And while there are many ways to describe the world that is around us, One thing that I believe Jesus is saying here about that world is the fact that that it is decaying, it is rotting. The world in which we live is not just evil, it is not just wicked, it has been infected with a horrific disease and it is in this long process of decay on its way to utter destruction. This reality is nothing new in the book of Matthew, it is nothing that Jesus Christ himself just comes up with. 
For as we read throughout the entire Bible, you see the evidence of that decay everywhere. To find the origin of the decay, we must just simply turn back to the very beginning of the story in the book of Genesis. As many of you know, in Genesis 1 and 2, the story of creation is told in which everything is very good, everything works according to the way that God intended it for to work. It is characterized by life, it is characterized by goodness, and in the midst of that goodness, God gives man a few very clear, very simple commands. Some of those commands specifically in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 there, all the way back in Genesis 2, we read that the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now at this point in time, death is, is non-existent. Death is not yet a reality, and yet, and yet God claims and promises, if you go against my order, if you'll go against my word, then you must understand death is inevitable. Death will happen. Despite that clear warning, though, Adam and Eve choose to do exactly what God commanded them not to do. They rebel against God. They reject the life that has been given to them. And we read of that rejection in Genesis chapter 3. And even though Adam and Eve are not immediately killed for their sin, there is this curse that is brought into existence. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 all the way down through 24, we read of, of what that death would mean, both for Adam and Eve as well as for all of creation. And if you were to read through Genesis 3 in those verses, you see how, how God speaks of the fact that the sin that has entered the world will now infect every, every part of existence, every part of creation. Every relationship would now be marred. Every relationship would now be made more difficult. And so that perfect relationship between Adam and Eve, between husband and wife, would now be made difficult and challenging. Authority would now be something that people work against and despise. That once perfect relationship between man and, and creation, man and nature, would, would now be frustrated and, and work would be toil, work would be fruitless at times. Worst of all, of course, the once perfect relationship between man and his creator, that relationship that we were intended to enjoy, that relationship that was to make every second of our existence a blessing, would now be frustrated. It would now be a separation And the end result of all of that, of course, would be, just as God promised, death itself. And from Genesis 3 forward, you see the effects of this death. You see that infection, that decay, as it spreads from the Garden of Eden throughout the rest of the world. It doesn't take long to see just how serious it is, for in Genesis chapter 4, we have that spread scene as as Cain kills Abel, as, as, as brother kills brother. We see it throughout the rest of Genesis as as not just individuals, but entire nations rise up against God. They despise His Word. They despise His holiness. They despise His righteousness. We see passages like Jeremiah 17.9 describe just how deep that decay goes when it tells us that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. This, this wickedness is not just external, it is internal. And as you move forward through the book of Romans, you see people like the Apostle Paul describe this decay, describe this death, over and over again. One of the most powerful passages or examples of this is, is found in Romans chapter 3. And in Romans chapter 3, feel free to turn with me over there. 
Paul describing the, the nature of man in the midst of this decay. And quoting the Old Testament says this in Romans chapter 3, verse, verse 10, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave with their tongues. They keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. This is the decay. This is the death that God promised. And while some people... In our world today, you might, might be offended by this, type of by this type of description. While the concept of the fact that we live in a decaying world is by no means a politically correct concept, it is, I believe, for the most part, accepted and understood even, even by your most, most unbelievers, those outside the church. For it does not take a high level of intelligence to look around and see that a lot of people are suffering. We live in a nation, in case you haven't seen it, it is incredibly divided. And people are incredibly cruel to one another. People are biting at one another, accusing one another of everything, and the constant refrain in all of this is, is we're not living up to our potential. Things are not as good as they should be. Even people who, who renounce the existence of God understand that, that surely this is not the way life was intended to be for, for anyone. We understand the decay, that death, that that this wickedness is all around us and it doesn't seem to, to be getting any better. For with each generation there is a new solution or a new rehashing of an old solution that people think will surely solve things. So if you study world history, if you study philosophy, you see the same ideas come and go and with each generation people think, okay, things will get better now. Not that long ago with, with movement that is now called modernism, there's this, there was an idea that that by pure human reason, humanity could literally figure out everything. We could test everything, solve every problem, and as we evolve, we could get to the point where, where there's no more war. There's no more fighting. There's no more struggles. We could surely solve all of our problems. And, and then you have things like World War II happen, and World War I happen, and, and other wars come along, and people realize, oh, things really aren't getting any better. And people started realizing, regardless of how advanced we become, the world still decays. People still die. People still suffer. People still struggle. And the end of it all, that inevitable end, is again exactly what God promised. It is death. Paul again in Romans 6.23 speaks of the fact that the wages of sin is death. The end result of rejecting God is the same every single time. It is utter destruction. When you cut creation off from its creator, the end cannot possibly be anything different. Tragically, despite how much mankind might attempt to, uh, to avoid that inevitable end, the same story is being told over and over again. Mankind is decaying. Humanity is decaying. The world is rotting and has been infected by this disease of sin, so much so that it appears to be incredibly hopeless to anyone who is just an outside observer. Now, this assumption that I believe underlies what Jesus ultimately says here about the church and is, is an assumption that, again, might be offensive to, to a few of you in here and is offensive to many people in the world. 
But to sit in a church and talk about how wicked the world is and how terrible everyone else is isn't really that difficult, is it? Because I think all of us could easily say, yeah, the world, going to hell in a handbasket, awful. I can't believe how bad the world is getting. When I worked with youth group for years, I would regularly hear the, the comment from other people saying, kids these days. I can't believe how terrible kids these days are, aren't they? I don't know how you deal with these kids. As if, as if the, the 90s came along and kids who were born were suddenly affected by sin in a way that, that no one was affected before. Right? We, we pretend as if this is just some external, outside thing that is happening and, and we as believers can easily sit back and, and act disgusted. Disgusted by the wickedness and, and grotesque nature of humanity. And while sin ought to be condemned, and while, yes, we must be quick to, to point out sin as, as best we can, we must understand that this assumption of Christ regarding humanity, that this teaching that the world is decaying, is never in the Bible some cold, detached observation of the believer. It's a tragic story. It's a horrific reality that ought to cause us to, to mourn and be upset over man's sin. You see this in Jesus' ministry frequently as he as he views death and, and he is angered by it in the story of Lazarus. As he looks at Jerusalem and, and he is devastated by their, by their sin and he speaks of his desire to, to gather them together and his desire for them to have their eyes opened. As believers, we must understand that this decay of the world is never again just some cold observation. It is a reality that ought to cause us to mourn and it is a state of affairs into which we have been placed. For as Jesus says here, as we move back into the passage really of, of Matthew 5.13, while it is certain indeed that, that the world is decaying, it is just as certain, according to Christ, that the church, God's people who have been set apart, will do the work of preservation. That the church has a key role to play in the midst of, in the muck of the filthiness of the world that surrounds us. This is made clear in the language that Christ uses to describe the church. Again, verse 13, and that assumption of the world in the background, we read, you, church, broadly, you are the salt of the earth. Now, for many of us today, this, this imagery of salt, I don't know, seems a little odd. We might speak of people being salt of the earth today, right? That, that might be somewhat of an outdated saying. But, but really, when we, when we say that, we're just saying, well, salt of the earth people are good, honest people, right? There's really nothing beyond that. And other people might say, okay, well, we're the salt of the earth, so, so salt is what? It's the spice, it's the flavor, so okay, I guess, I guess we add spice to the world. I don't really know what this means. But we have to understand what Jesus is saying here in his culture and really throughout most of history, to call the church salt is a pretty incredible honor. It's an amazing thing for Jesus to say regarding the church. For historically speaking, salt is, is an essential element. Salt is extremely valuable throughout most of world history. Throughout the vast majority of that history, salt and its uses goes way beyond just adding flavor to, to your food. As many of you understand already, salt throughout most of history was used to, to bring purity, to, to cleanse food, to cleanse a number of things, to help heal wounds. There's a medicinal element to the use of salt. As people have studied ancient history and, and, 
And in places like in ancient China, they see this, this medicinal use that was a, a key part of, of how they, they treated wounds, of how they treated diseases. In a more recent example, in a way that many of you are familiar, that same salt that can help heal a wound also was essential in help preserving food. Because, of course, before the days of, of refrigeration, food would rot very quickly. This is a problem since we need food to survive. And so, thankfully, mankind was able to figure out, hey, the salt, if rubbed into, say, a slab of meat, if, if applied with a saline solution, can actually help uh, prolong the, the use of this food. It can actually help us survive and allow us to continue on in life. So valuable was this use, so valuable was the, the concept of salt that as you read of ancient wars, you see salt was, was actually a key part of many wars as people were battling over controlling salt fields and, and salt mines as, as people exchanged salt as a form of currency. Salt was an essential element throughout the ancient world and was still an essential element when Jesus Christ uttered this word in, in Matthew 5.13. And in light of that incredible value when it came to its purity, when it came to its, its work of preservation... It is perhaps of no surprise that it was used frequently, again, even prior to Christ, in, in religious observances. When you read the Old Testament, many of us would be surprised to see how, how frequent salt played a role in the commands that God gave to His people and in the language that was used to describe covenants, to describe God's relationship with His people, to describe sacrifices. You see that symbolic usage in passages like Second Chronicles. In 2 Chronicles chapter 13, as, as the relationship between God and man is described, God and Israel is described, we read these words. 2 Chronicles verse 13, verse 5. Do you not know? Do you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the rule over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Again, we read that today and we think, well, that's weird. But if the people in that day... A covenant of salt was significant because, well, well salt was a valuable concept and, and salt spoke of stability, salt spoke of, of preservation. So to say that a, that a promise is marked by salt, well, well that means it's marked by faithfulness, it's marked by, by purity, it's, it's marked by something that will last really forever and ever. That same sort of covenantal faithfulness and, and the use of salt is seen also in other commands, commands like Leviticus, Chapter 2, verse 13, where the command regarding sacrifices are given to, to offer sacrifices with salt. The sacrifices are to be, to be seasoned with salt. Again, speaking to that faithfulness, speaking to that, that longevity. In many other Old Testament passages, salt is used as, as a symbol for purity. Again, very significant passage over in Exodus, chapter 30. As God is giving his people very detailed commands of what sort of sacrifices they are to offer, he offers this word in Exodus chapter 30, verse 35. With it, with spices as you already mentioned, God says you shall make incense, a perfume, the work of a perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. He goes on to describe the necessity of this purity in verse 36 and says, You shall beat some of it very fine and put part of it, of the, put part of it before the testimony of the tent of meeting where I will meet you 
And it shall be most holy to you. And so again, while this might not be significant in our own culture today, salt, when it was used in the Old Testament, speaks of purity. It, it speaks of something that is sacred. For salt symbolized and stood for stability. It stood for preservation. It stood for purity. And so when salt was being used in trade, when salt was being used in religious sacrifices, it was viewed with, with, as the most valuable commodity that you could possibly imagine. For it pointed the person to, to something beyond themselves. It pointed to purity. It pointed to the fact that they fully believed that this promise, this relationship would last long after they themselves would live. And so again, to go back to Matthew chapter 5, and to read that Jesus says, you church are the salt of the earth, we understand Jesus is saying something far more shocking, really, far more significant than, than we might tend to, to give it credit. We understand that when Jesus calls us salt, he is not saying we are something common. He is saying that the church is an essential element to be used in combating the decay of the world that surrounds us. When Jesus says you are salt, he is not leaving this open to, to vague interpretation as to what it means. I believe Jesus is clearly saying that that if the church is salt, well, well, that means the church does what in the world? It means it goes out in the world. It means that it helps preserve the world. It means that it helps bring purity to the world. Just by its mere existence, the church makes the world a better place. Jesus, throughout his teachings, makes it clear that this is always the point of his people. Jesus never saves the church. He never sets us apart for the sake of of calling us to remain detached from the world in which we live. Even in the midst of recognizing just how much of a challenge lies ahead of us and how difficult of a world in which we live, Jesus continues to insist upon the necessity of, of our own strategy, of our own mission. In John chapter 17, as he prays to the Father, Jesus says this regarding the church and regarding the usefulness of the church. John chapter 17, verse 14. He says, I have given them, the church, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world even as I'm not of the world. I, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus, of course, far better than us, understands the threat that stands before the church. He understands that there's a very real enemy that seeks our harm. That sees us not simply as distasteful, but, but as dangerous to his plan. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, the word, the word tells us. And we understand this, this is a very real threat. And yet, despite that threat, Jesus' prayer to the Father is not... Father, please take them away from this. Father, please take them out of this world. No, his, his prayer is protect them from the evil one, but, but still I understand they are sent out in the world. They are to be applied to this decaying mass. They are to be applied in the world in such a way that they might be able to help slow that decay. They might be able to stand as, as this purifying agent. Now part of that purity as Eric will no doubt get into next week, speaks of this re revealing the truth and 
preaching the gospel. But even before you get to that point, you understand that salt by its mere existence and by, by its mere presence is meant to make whatever, it, whatever absorbs it a, a better, cleaner place, a cleaner environment. You see other New Testament authors speak of, of this presence and speak of, of the way that we affect the world around us as salt, in passages like 1 Peter. In 1 Peter, having described our character again in a very similar way to what Jesus has already described in Matthew 5, we read these words in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-12. through 12. Peter, first of all, describing our character, says, You, believers, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are a people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which weighs wars against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation." Command to the believers here in 1 Peter. The prayer of Jesus back in John chapter 17 isn't, dear believers, abstain from the world by just removing yourselves from the world entirely. No, it's dear believers, maintain this proper character, but maintain it in the midst of the Gentiles, in the midst of the decay. Live your lives in such a way that the world, while it hates you, is forced to just watch you with amazement is forced to to see you truly as different and the hopeful result of of their observations of your life is that they're forced to see that maybe there is some truth to this thing we call Christianity. Maybe there really is a benefit that Christians can bring to this world even in the midst of being persecuted. And this idea is is foreign, I think, in the the minds of, of many of us as believers. Many of us, look at the decay of the world around us, and we can become so hopeless, so so fearful, because we assume that there's nothing we can possibly do to combat it. And so we pray for Jesus to return, and while, yes, we ought to pray this, many of us pray for it just out of sheer cowardice. Because we don't want to deal with the world. We don't want to have to be persecuted. We don't want to live in the midst of the muck and filth. But it's in the midst of that muck and filth that we are called to live. It's in the midst of that muck and filth that we are able to accomplish the purpose that God has given the church. And even though many people in our world today are quick to say, well, the church has never done good for anyone. And many of you have no doubt heard the arguments regarding the, uh, the famous crusades, and, and people will point to that example in history as if that's the only thing Christians have ever done. Right? This completely unfair caricature of church history. But study world history... And it is impossible to ignore how significant of a benefit the church and its mere existence has been to all of humanity when it has lived in the right way. You see this clearly in stories of the Reformation where where believers just by merely existing and and trying to live out their faith are pushing for things like literacy and education. They're they're trying to help people around them, not, not just simply to preach the gospel, but to help encourage life, to help encourage this this fruitfulness amongst humanity. 
You see countless examples of Christians going out and just being present, and in their presence, they're doing things like building up hospitals and trying to help advance medical care, medical aid. As racism continues to plague our nation and cause great division, as as we consider the history of that, as we consider the history of, of slavery, while yes, there have been many believers who sadly have lost sight of the truth and and have been involved in horrific acts of of racism, there have been many other believers who, simply by merely existing and merely being driven by their faith, have understood that their calling requires them to to work against these things of, of injustice. And so you famously have people like William Wilberforce, who served in politics in the parliament, and he was so driven by his faith that his desire to end slave trade in his mind was, was his greatest mission. And it was simply a result and an outpouring of his faith. Throughout the story of the church, throughout the history of the church, there are countless examples of believers who are genuinely living life alongside other unbelievers in the world of politics, in athletics, and in the world of, of law, in the world of education, and simply because they are living out their faith, simply because they are driven by this character that is described in Matthew 5, because they are driven by a, a desire to serve God, they inevitably make a pretty significant impact in the world around them. Now, of course, I'm not saying that, that God will use you or will use us as, a, as, as Cape Bible Chapel to do some great, tremendous thing that will be remembered in history. But what I am saying, and what I think Jesus is clearly saying, is that the church will inevitably be used by God to bring preservation, to bring purity. It will happen. This is God's plan. And so the question isn't so much of, okay, well, how in the world can that possibly happen? Or how in the world can we possibly slow that decay? The question of of application that we must ask ourselves, and really the command that we must hear from this verse in Matthew chapter 5 is not just what must the church do but instead what are you called to do then as a believer if the world is decaying as I think most of us would would quickly acknowledge and if the church is being used by God to preserve to bring purity what are you doing about it how are you being used by God as salt in this world Because while it is inevitable that God will use his church to bring preservation, to bring purity, there is the underlying command that you as a believer must act. You must do something to actually play a part in this plan. For as Jesus Christ says here, there is the potential of some believers somehow missing out on this fact. Again, looking back at verse 13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. That is a fact, but... Salt has become tasteless. How can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Jesus, as he speaks of our calling, speaks also of a very real danger that exists in the church. And that danger is, is the danger of salt failing to actually be used as salt. Now, there is much debate surrounding this text as to whether or not salt can really lose its flavor, right? One of the reasons why it was so valuable is that salt doesn't really break down. It, it is very long-lasting. And so some people debate, okay, is, is Jesus saying that this could actually happen? The point that most people come down and agree on is, is Jesus is at least saying that there is a real potential threat of salt losing its usefulness. And I think this can happen in in two particular ways. One way, quite simply, is 
is we can fail to be salt if we refuse to be used. That is to say, if we remain in the salt shaker, to use this imagery of salt. Again, in, in Jesus Christ's prayer, in John, as we read earlier, he spoke of the fact that we have been sent out. And even though that is a reality of the church, there are many believers, many of us, who seem to have missed out on that point. We seem to have forgotten that, that we really have no choice as to whether or not we will live our lives in a fallen world. We will live our lives in a fallen world. And it is far from the Christian response to simply refuse to interact with the world, that it's far from a Christian thing to sit back, criticize the world around us, hurl insults at the world around us, and then just come to church on Sunday and think, okay, well, I did my job because I was really critical of the world. And that's not what we do. But sadly, we oftentimes can lose sight of that calling. We lose sight of, of what God has called us. You see this thread in, in the loss of usefulness in Revelation. And as, as Jesus speaks to the churches in Revelation, one of the most famous churches he speaks to, or one of the most famous examples that we see in Revelation, is in Revelation chapter 2. And, and there in Revelation chapter 2, as, as the church of Ephesus is addressed, in verse 2 of chapter 2, he says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. You have done great in this, right? That's the idea. Verse 3, you have, had, you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary, but this I have against you, you've not, that you've left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the deeds you did at first or else, I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. The message to Ephesus is not, dear Ephesus, you aren't actually believers. It's not, dear Ephesus, you're not actually a real church. The clear teaching here is you've done great things. You've put your faith in Christ. Great. But over time, you've lost your usefulness. You've lost sight of your first love, your love of Christ, and as a result, your ministry is lacking. There's, there's no outreach there. There's, there's no impact that you're making in the world around you. And the very real threat, the very real danger that lies out of Ephesus, as Jesus says, is if you don't do this, I'll, I'll just remove lampstand from you. I will end the church at Ephesus, and I will use someone else. Very sadly, you see this, this in history many times, where, where generations in a particular church will do great things, but over time that church will become so insulated from the world around it that that eventually no one in the community even realizes that church still meets, still exists. It's not actually accomplishing anything. And eventually God can choose to simply use someone else, a different church, because despite being salty, it refuses to be used as salt. Aside from that threat, however, there is another danger, another way that we can fail to be salt, and that is simply through contamination. Even if salt cannot technically lose its flavor, it, became, it can become so contaminated and so overwhelmed by things that are not salt that it doesn't actually accomplish anything that is good. And so, for instance, if, if salt is mixed too much with sand, it, it cannot be used to do anything good, to accomplish anything. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, you see warnings of, of the way the world does this. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, in speaking of our calling in this world, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In order to do this, verse 2, 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In the midst of, of striving to maintain a proper, a proper witness, in the, in the midst of trying to, to make an impact on the world around us, we must be very careful to maintain this proper level of purity, it is very easy in the midst of the muck, in the midst of the decay, to forget about the character of Matthew 5, verses 1 through 11. It's very easy to forget about that purity. And many of us have no doubt seen, sadly, brothers and sisters in Christ who have a strong ministry, strong relationship with unbelievers that, that one year look to be so great and you think, oh, what an impact they're making. But, but over time, they they start looking more and more like their unbelieving friends rather than, than being the, this proper salt, being this proper believer. Over time, their language changes. Over time, their desires change from, from being a, a purifying, uh, playing a purifying role in their lives to just simply hanging out and, and being more and more friends with the world. Over time, if we're not careful, we, even though we, we are salt, even though we have been changed, can look increasingly as if we are ourselves decaying, as if we are headed towards death. We, become, we can become so fearful of offending the world around us by the character we're, we're striving to maintain that, that we try to mask that which makes us different. And the danger here in this, of course, is not just that we lose our ministry, as we mentioned earlier, with uselessness. It's that we become something dangerous in the eyes of God. We ourselves can suddenly become a contaminating force as well. We ourselves can misrepresent the church. And Jesus Christ's promise here isn't that our salvation is removed, but but very seriously, it's that God's use of us can be taken away. As Jesus says here, the, the only thing to do with this tasteless salt is for it to just be thrown out so it can be trampled upon. In other passages, such as in Luke 14, Jesus speaks of, of salt that has gone bad is not even good enough for, for the manure heap. It ought to be thrown away, away from everything. Right? It's, it's a sickening thing to see for, for that which was once so incredibly valuable has become utterly useless. And Jesus tells us, the believer, that if we fail to be used, if we refuse to be used, that there are very serious consequences to that. And they will rest assured that while our salvation might be secure, our usefulness is not. And we will incur the discipline of our Heavenly Father. And so in response to that danger, the clear call is to to be useful, to be absorbed, to look at the world around you and understand that as dark and as dirty as it might be, you can actually play a part in, in the cleanup. You can actually be used by God to to really impact the lives of people around you just by being present. As you seek to be absorbed in your local community, as you seek to be involved in your local schools and politics and neighborhoods in whatever sphere that you live, you can be rest assured that God will use you, assuming that you continue to live by the power of the Holy Spirit and strive to, to live by the grace that Jesus Christ gives us. And as shocking as it is, as Jesus says here in verse 13, if, if we do this, if we walk by that Spirit, the promise is that, that you really will be used by God. That you can be used to help preserve the world, to help slow the process of decay. This is shocking, is it not? 
To think that God can use you to, to shape the world around us? Think of who Jesus is speaking to in these passages. These are not world changers that Jesus Christ has by his side. And this is a ragtag group of disciples that messes up constantly throughout the Gospels that, that really look as unimpressive as you can possibly look in that culture, and yet Jesus looks at them and says, you, you're it. You're going to change the world. That's incredible. And yet it's always been the case. For In the Old Testament, God chooses Israel, this nothing nation that looks so unimpressive, and God says, you, you're it. You're going you're to make my name more glorified among the nations. People will see you, and by looking at you, they will know Yahweh. They will know me. Through Israel, through a tiny, powerless, pathetic group of people. Not that they're empowered by Yahweh, they're empowered by God. The same thing is true for us today. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, God doesn't choose us because we're exceptionally impressive. God chooses us for the most part because we are so unimpressive. And while that can be somewhat of a beating at times and seems somewhat discouraging, the complete opposite is true here. We are promised that God will use us. That God will cause us to impact the lives of people around us. And I was just talking to my brother Marty earlier about this, where even though we might not necessarily see it in the moment, God is using us to be a tremendous encouragement to the people around us. They are watching you. They are listening to you. And as they receive your words of encouragement, as they hear you speak of a pure life, as they see you strive to be a good spouse, a good employee, many of them are taking note of it. Many of them see that purity, and many of them desire to see that life. And as a result, they might be open to the light of the gospel that perhaps will be exposed to them. And so we as believers must take courage in this. And so as we close, as we consider all of this, for unbelievers, first and foremost, please hear me that, that you are dying. You are dead. Try and try as you might, you cannot cure yourself. Try and try as you might, you will never find lasting contentment in this life. Never. For you are broken, and the world in which you live is broken beyond all hope. But please understand that the word of the gospel is not some crushing blow that just speaks to your hopelessness, but instead, the word of the gospel is, is a word of hope. And understand that despite the fact you are dead, there is our Lord and Savior who is able to bring you to life. And all you must do is, is simply call upon his name and put trust in him and, and God will bring you to life and God will then use you amazingly to help bring life to others as well. And so I pray that you do that this morning, that you... Repent of your sins that you see that decay and you might see the beauty and the life of Christ and the life that he offers. And as believers, the, the application of this is clear. The, the question we must ask ourselves is, are we really that different? Are, are we being salty in the world that surrounds us? Are we different in our pursuits? Are we different in the lives that we lived? Or are we just like every other conservative American? And that's great, right? Good job, that's you, but that's not the call of the believer. We must be unique in how we live our daily lives. And so let us examine our influence. Let us honestly ask ourselves what impact we are making in our community here in Cape Girardeau and abroad. Are we making a difference? Are we living our lives in a way that might make a difference? In turn, let us not feel guilty, but let us return to our source of saltiness. Let us again remember our first love, look to Christ, Take comfort in the fact that it is he who has made us anew that makes us salt. 
And in turn, let us be used by him and and seek out ways to be absorbed by the community around us. And let us do this with great excitement, knowing that while the world might be a mucky place, a dirty place, a decaying place, we have an incredibly valuable and necessary role to play. For as we live our lives, God will use us to bring purity. God will use us to bring preservation. And in that preservation, again, the hope ultimately as the world might see God's glory more clearly and that God might bring more to him through his Son.